everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. We're your hosts, Brian Edwards, Nathan Cravat. I'm JC Groves. Man, it is good to be here with you. Guys, it's been a while since we've sat down and actually recorded an episode. We had the bourbon meetup for the last two weeks, and so I'm glad to be recording again with you. Man, it's so good to hear you say those words. I love it. It's been a while. Absolutely, man. You know, so much going on, and yet this desire, we've got to get back to recording, man. We've got yeah. things to say and issues to deal with. We've got a lot to dive into, so I'm glad to be back. Well, we definitely have a lot to dive into over these next couple of weeks. I'm excited about our conversation that we're going to be having here for the next few weeks. But before we jump into that, there's some folks we want to thank and let you know about. Free Life Soap, of course, our sponsor here at the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. Thank you, Miss McCrimmon, for all of your free soap that you send to us. You can check them out today by going to recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the Free Life Soap tab. Use your promo code RFP and get 20% off of your order. And uh, it is fall. They have Brian's favorite pumpkin scent now. And so hey, be sure to get on that. I've got to be honest, JC. I think Campfire is better than pumpkin it's good. spice. If Definitely. I, if it's I good. had yes. to choose between the two, I'm going <laughs> Campfire all the way. Brian's I been converted. Knew. He has been converted. I never knew that a soap could smell like a campfire and be so good. It's unbelievable. Bro. It's the scent two hours later that smells good. You're like, have I been around a fire? What's going on? I love JC, it. did you actually inspire this scent? Because I think it was in Bourbon where Brian was talking about uh, pumpkin spice smells like fall, and you said, so do burning leaves. And then next thing we know, we get a campfire smell. So I think you may have inspired this, bro. I can't take credit for it, but I'll take credit. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh. good. Hey, I also want to give a shout-out to some listeners of the podcast, the Jason Lovins Band. Uh, you can find them on Instagram, Twitter, uh, MySpace. I don't know where they're at, but thanks for sending me a hat. And uh, they are avid listeners of the podcast, and they got some great music. I think there's a lot of you that will enjoy the Jason Lovins Band. So shout-out to them. That's a good-looking hat, JC. I like it, man. I enjoy it. Yeah, it really the only is. thing I don't like about this hat, is it's got these holes in it. Oh, that's bald men, cool. Bald men can't wear these kind of hats because if I wear that out in the sun, I'm going to have little dots all over my head. It's, it's oh, bald man. man problems. That's, that's all it is. That's awesome. So in other words, that's not the band's fault. That's your head's fault. Exactly. But Calvin means bald. So I guess it was predestined to happen. Come on, man. I love it. <laughs> that's it. So guys, I don't know if y'all have had anything exciting or interesting happen since we've been recording. I've been keeping notes in my phone because I want to keep up with some of the things that we need to talk about, especially in the banner, because uh, I've heard people say that they fast forward through the banner. Man, this is yeah. this is part of my favorite absolutely. part. I absolutely this love talking right to you guys. Here. And we this is us sitting around a virtual campfire shooting the breeze with each other. Man, I absolutely love it. But listen to this story. I'm at a small group. This summer, our small group took off. David Rude, one of the guys who was hosting it at his house, said, Hey, man, uh, let's, let's all get together. I miss you guys. So part of the group shows up at his house, and we're sitting on his back porch at dusk. And he goes, Man, I, I've listened to some of the podcasts. He said, I've got a crazy story for you. I said, What? He said, So my grandfather and grandmother sold Peter Ruckman the property that he built his church and Bible Institute on. I was wow. like, what? Because this dude's from Pensacola like I am, and we were talking about it. He goes, yeah. He goes, let me call my dad. So he called his dad up, and he said, yeah, it was Mildred Barkey that 
sold that property back in like 65 or something like that. And they didn't go to the church. They didn't have anything to do with it, but they did know him and he lived close by. And I was like, what are the chances I would be sitting That's in a small crazy. group and someone would be like, oh, by the way, we sold this property to start Ruckman's Church and Bible Institute. Hey, That's nuts. Nathan, I'm going to say something that you never dreamed you would hear me say. <laughs> JC, What's this? you might want to hold on to the sides of your chair. I actually am thankful for something with regard to Peter Ruckman. I just realized the other day I heard this pastor talking about him and praising him. And I'm actually thankful that very, very, very few people in the scope of our nation for the past and the present and the future even know who he is. I'm so glad oh, that there's just a small slither of people who even know the name Peter Ruckman. So for that, with regard to Peter Ruckman, I am thankful. <laughs> that was a tweet you've been hanging on that's, to. It that's, you just you wanted to, to say that, that out loud. <laughs> just do so it. You didn't have to tweet it. You wanted to say that and not tweet that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's I am hilarious. too. I'm very thankful. Hey, I've got a Brian Edwards story. Oh, I no. can't wait for this, dude. This is so cool. So I'm not going to name this guy. He literally said I could name him. So I may tell you guys privately who it is, but I don't want this to come back on him or his church. But he's been going through this process of listening to the RFP and questioning his beliefs and looking at Scripture. And, man, I've been basically mentoring this guy, and uh, he's asked a ton of questions. But when he was going through this process, like in the really difficult stage, and you guys know what that stage felt like, where you're questioning everything, you don't know what you believe, his pastor yeah. asked him to preach. And he was like, man, I tried for weeks and weeks to prepare. He said, and it just wasn't working. I couldn't study. I couldn't keep a train of thought. He said, I hate to admit this. And I mean, he was almost in tears. He said, I hate to admit this, but I stole a Brian Edwards sermon. <laughs> he said, I promise I'm not lying. He said, I preached a Brian Edwards sermon almost word for word. He goes, hey, it was better than any sermon I'd ever preached. And I hope nobody ever finds out. He goes, but I just felt guilty for doing that. JC, I wanted to ask him why he didn't steal one of our sermons. He went straight oh, to man. Brian Edwards. <laughs> he just wanted to preach a Charles Stanley sermon. That's it. What? <laughs> oh man, I don't, e I don't even know how to respond to that. Um, you know, I think first that was of a all, compliment. Well, well, first no, of all, you know, <laughs> first of all, I feel uh, I feel sorry for for him for having to uh, to preach one of my sermons. I I hope he preached it better than I did, and I'd, oh, I'd kind of be interested to know which one he preached. You know, I ask him, and he goes, "Man, he goes." I don't think we recorded that sermon. He says not on Facebook. And then he goes, don't go looking for it because I might have <laughs> lied to you. And I said, man, I, if you don't want me to, I won't. He goes, please don't go find that. I'm, I'm embarrassed enough about it. Please. <laughs> listen, listen, Brian, you should be honored that Matt Dudley preached one of your sermons. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Here's what I can tell you, Nathan. You know, I, I outlined in manuscript form. I started that several years ago. Uh, because of our tech team and it helps them stay on track with me and it helps me stay on track. And so I have guys all of the time, they'll get in touch with me and say, Hey, do you have anything on this subject or do you have anything on this particular passage or this book of the Bible? And so I just forward people what I have. 
And the thing is, because it's in manuscript form, it's so easy to follow. They can see exactly what I intended to say and where I was going with a thought. And so when I realized that I sent them the outline and they still didn't preach it, <laughs> I realized they realized what it was and then had no interest in preaching that whatsoever. So it's pretty humbling. Uh, well, Brian, I've heard a lot of your sermons and uh, everyone I've heard has been good, man. Oh, I love you. You know, I've actually never heard you preach. What? Really? That may explain I, why I you're still in. not saved. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> true, I guess. I've tuned in a few times, like during quarantine, and listened, and just to make comments on the live feed and mess with you. But I've never actually listened to a whole sermon. So, yeah, thank you, Jason. I can point you to some good Brian Edwards sermons if you if you ever. Uh, are just in in the need for for a yeah. deep, solid theological sermon. Nice. I mean, I've heard your dad preach a ton of sermons. I just assumed they were all his, so that's why I've never really <laughs> you know, taken the time. I will say this: no one can preach a Craig Edwards sermon. You Man, just yeah. can't. Uh, I remember it's pastors good. and evangelists trying, and they said it just didn't work. But you know what's crazy, JC? I was saying to my dad the other day that so much of what you said around me and to me stuck. Because when I'm talking, I will say, my dad always says, or daddy said this. I say that all the time. I say the same thing. Yep. So when he thought I was fidgeting around and wasn't paying any attention and and probably wasn't, it's crazy, man. More was sinking in than I realized. You're right. I heard my son the other day at soccer practice. Uh, he was talking to some of his friends, and he got in the car, and he goes, Dad, what's, what's that line about truth that you always say? Isn't it like truth doesn't fear a fight or truth doesn't fear like a brawl? What, what is it? I said, a challenge. He's like, a challenge. Okay, that's what I got to do. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, I was telling some of the guys on my team because coach was asking who was cussing, and I told him, hey, truth doesn't fear a fight, guys. Come on. And they were like, what? <laughs> I love I it. I mean, that – that's true. There, it does sink in, you know, and it's the good and the bad. I was preaching a sermon a little while back on the fact that discipleship happens in the home, whether you intend for it to or not. Your children mm-hmm. will be discipled, whether you mean for them to be or not. So yep. I was preaching this sermon and I was telling the church, um, you know, I've always thought that I was the only person in the world who ate a little bit of grape jelly with the last little bit of my scrambled eggs. I was having breakfast with my dad not that long ago, and he had a few scrambled eggs left on the plate, and he got one of those little containers of grape jelly, dumped it out on his plate, and started eating the two together. And I said, wait a minute. I'm the one who invented that. He said, are you crazy? I've been doing this since you were a kid. And that's when it hit me. (laughs) Yeah. I saw that, picked up on that, and didn't even realize it even happened. Brian, that's funny you said that story because I, I have a jelly story as well. We went to Cracker Barrel on Saturday, and I looked down. And, Nate, you've seen me do this. I will take jelly and put it in a bowl with butter, and I whip the two together and create this jelly-butter mixture, and then I slab it on my cornbread. Uh, I looked down the table. The family went to eat Saturday, and all three of my boys and my oldest daughter were sitting there just whipping up butter and jelly together. And I was like, I had my wife. I said, look at that. She's like, they do it all the time. But that's one of those <laughs> things they picked up on just by watching Dad. That's a very powerful statement right there, how much they are actually picking up just by watching us disciple them with our words, our actions, our life. Man, step up to the plate, Dad. My godfather, R.V. Brown, has a book called Step Up to the Plate, and man, it really gets me all the time because we got a lot of dads that are just deadbeat. We're discipling whether we know it or not. 
Yeah, man, absolutely. I can't think of any stories where my kids do what I do, but in my household, my kids make fun of everything I do, and they yeah. all laugh at mm-hmm. it, and they have hilarious dad stories, and when they tell stories about me, I always have the most hilarious voice. My son's always <laughs> like, Dad told me, hey, boy, get over here, boy. Come over here and talk to me. And he has this most ridiculous redneck voice. I know I sound like a redneck, but I'm not that bad. But, yeah, my, my family just loves to make fun of me. But, hey, we make fun of each other, so we, we have a lot of fun with that. Nathan, I would disagree with that. I think you've passed on a lot to your kids because I've spent a lot of time with each one of your children, and they all have super huge hearts. They're all encouraging. They have positive outlooks so i think your kids have picked up a lot from you and uh i think they're better people for it bro i appreciate that man guys i gotta be honest with you this is getting into one of those like dad giving away their daughter moments on youtube that i watch (laughs) and start tearing up and i hate those moments i don't know why we went there during this banter but it has nothing to do i guess it has something to do with the topic that we're going to talk about today over these next few weeks we are diving into the subject of alcohol And uh, we're going to be looking at a biblical stance on alcohol. And uh, we've been talking about this for a while. And it is time for the RFP to talk about alcohol. Y'all ready? I am ready. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Ready or not, let's go. Sometimes you want to go where everybody (laughs) What are we even doing right now? We can't play that. We are not editing. Rick, 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 Rick. Oh my oh, gosh! Too good. Oh, dude. Man, you two That's guys funny. with a cell phone and YouTube—you are dangerous. <laughs> what about that real five-minute-long intro we have? How about let's spin that? All right, for real now, though. Let's get ready to tick everybody off. <laughs> The Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast begins in three. These podcasts, (laughs) podcasts, that sounds like a convention of beans or peas to me. Podcast. Listen, in these recovering fundamentalists, they don't know the Bible either. What are the fundamentals? Inerrancy, virgin birth of Jesus Christ, substitutionary atonement, bodily resurrection of Christ, and the authenticity of miracles. Two. I am not a recovering fundamentalist. They're everywhere. They're all over the internet. They want to be, uh, what do they call it? Recovering from fundamentalism. They're everywhere. And I think to myself, well, you were just stupid to begin with. And if there's such a word, you're stupider now. We ain't recovering from nothing, good neighbor. We're reviving from the Holy Ghost. Somebody say, man, rock Everybody wants to focus on recovering. Oh, you're recovering. Oh, you need yeah. help. You need therapy. You're recovering. Let's focus on fundamentalists. We're recovering fundamentalism back from people who have hijacked it. We are biblical. Family, we are the fundamentalists. Man. That'll make a Baptist want to speak in tongues right there, boys. One. I'm going to tell you one thing. Uh, We better stay uh, in the old paths. But what are the old paths? I've, I've heard that my whole life, and nobody's ever been able to tell me what the old paths or the old time religion really is because it's whatever 
era you mm-hmm. overly romanticize in your mind as being when the church was That's right. Mm. Like it, love it, pump it, jump it, take it across the street and dump it. We've raised a generation that is ashamed of our forefathers and act like they were somehow done wrong in the way they were brought up and they were damaged and they were scarred because they were raised in a home that had standards and convictions and kept them on the old time way. You got their number, boys. Y'all thought you started the podcast. You went and started a movement. Thanks for joining us for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Make sure to stay tuned at the end of the show to hear more about the RFP sponsors. Now, here's your host for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, Nathan Cravat, J.C. Groves, and Brian Edwards. Well, hey again, everybody. It's good to be here with you on this week's episode talking about alcohol. Before we jump into that, we also want to thank one of our sponsors, Lootbox Creative. They have come on board as a sponsor of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. You can check them out by going to lootboxcreative.org. That's lootboxcreative.org. L-O-O-T-B-O-X creative.org. That's it. org. All right, guys. Well, we are finally at the alcohol series, if you will, because this is going to be a couple weeks. We got some guests coming on here in a few weeks, but I'm excited about this topic, this conversation. And I think even amongst us three, we have different views, um, and that's okay. Um, That's the that's the good thing about not being in an echo chamber. Um, But I hope y'all are ready because you know this is going to hit the fan. We're going to be called drunkards. There's going to be some people. And here's what I want you to understand. There's going to be a lot of people that don't agree with us, our stance. There's going to be people that do. Uh, There's going to be people that wish we would dive in a little bit deeper in certain areas and not go in certain areas. But I think there's too many people that just blurt out a quick yes or no without thinking through the complexities of this topic. And so that's what we want to do over the next few weeks is just kind of dive in a little bit to this topic of alcohol. Yeah. Our goal is to present a biblical view of alcohol. Uh, I don't really care what people say for years. I took people's word for it. And when I dove into scripture, I was really surprised at what I found. So we want to present a biblical worldview. Yeah. I think also a biblical worldview guards us from presenting an American view because I think this subject has been approached in an Americanized way versus a biblical way. And I think that Mm -hmm. always, always impacts our outlook overall. And we have to realize that the Bible wasn't written by Americans for Americans, but it's a book that literally encompasses the globe. So when we take a biblical view then that truth can be preached in any nation, to any people, in any context. So the fact that we're taking a biblical view, I think, is most important. Yeah. And today we're going to be listening to a sermon. But before we get there, I want to play uh, a podcast from an Independent Fundamental Baptist podcast that mentioned us. This was quite a while back, and I saved it. And this came after the episode where we were talking about extra-biblical standards. This is what they had to say. When I first started hearing this was, what are they talking about? I just didn't know. I mean, if they have an issue because, you know, I wear a suit, that that really, that makes them mad. Well, I I mean, I didn't mean to make them mad, you know, that type thing. Or 
you know, because maybe my family has a Forever. personal, you know, stand. Like, for example, I, I, I'm sure. personally a teetotaler. I'm teetotaling against alcohol. I have been. I, I was raised up in an alcoholic's home. So uh, I, I don't very right. rarely have I ever preached on that um, when people, you know, I know that's a big thing today. I, I heard one podcast is unbelievable to me. This is unbelievable to me. And they were on this podcast and I don't know who, I can't remember who it was now. And, and they were pouring, and I don't know if they were joking. I don't know if they were mocking people like right. me that, that are right. against you know, alcoholic consumption or what, but they were mm. acting like they were pouring a beer, drinking mm. liquor or whatever it was. And, and I, and I remember brother Mark, when I was a backslidden away teenager that, that would not have cared. I'd have been like, well, I don't care. Um, I, I remember, I was like, what happened to preachers? It, you, that used to be a thing that every single preacher, right. It didn't matter. These Methodist Episcopal, any preacher I knew, you know, uh, Pentecostal, yeah. The old time, I guess maybe I was around old time preachers, country people. Right. None of them were okay with alcohol. I mean, that they may have battled it. They may have people in their church that battle it, but it was, let's just rip alcohol. Right. Now you very rarely hear that. And yes. that's even happened in the last five to 10 years. Um, and, and I've noticed that even older men, and they say, Hey, I, I, that, that, you know, y'all are wrong on this interpretation. And as a, as a preacher myself, I'm like, well, then how come you rat, you know, you sure wasn't yeah. ripping my hide when I was a teenager about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I wish y'all figured that out before I, you know, back when I, I maybe felt more. And so, you know, that, that's the problems that I have is like you said, it really is. And, and whatever your, whatever your interpretation is on those verses, for example, about alcohol or separation or music, it really is at the end of the day, however you slice it, a weaker position. I mean, it's just weaker. And, uh, and I know that there's good men that disagree. So anybody who disagrees with them is automatically weaker. Uh, that's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like to me, if you hold a biblical position that that's considered ultimately a weaker position. And by the way, these guys have to be held accountable on all of the things they say that are false. You know, for example, in your King James Bible debate, so many things were said that were blatantly false. And I just started putting those things out on Twitter because they were completely false. Okay, I'm reading this from historical record. This is about Puritans. He's saying all of the old preachers were against alcohol. Alcohol production and the importation of alcohol as a business to those settling in the province of Maine was annexed by Massachusetts in the 1650s. Women made beer at home, and the wealthy imported wine from the Portuguese and Spanish islands. Coastal people discovered a taste for West Indies rum, trading lumber for it. By 1700, more Yankees drank rum than beer, with cheap New England rum being distilled in Boston and later in Falmouth, apple orchards that matured for 10 years after settlement, provided towns with cider, a popular drink, and a cash crop. Listen closely. From the beginning... Inbibbing was a part of New England's social and religious institutions. Religious leader Increase Mather rebuked drunkards while praising strong drink as a good creature of God. Parents and children drank together. Ministers were known to fortify themselves before sermons. Men were given their daily grog at breaks or during breaks at work. Think about that. He said all of the old pastors, well, they were against alcohol. 
And I'm not even making a statement for alcohol. I'm just simply saying that's not true. And by the way, independent Baptist pastors quote the Puritans constantly. And you should know that the Puritans would disagree with your view of teetotaling. So what he said in that moment was false, which leads me to believe what else is false. I think we've all heard preachers misuse scripture or misuse historical content to prove their point. JC, I'm I'm sure you would even have something to say about that. You know, guys, there is a sermon that was preached years ago uh, that all of us have listened to. Uh, I'm sure that it shaped a view uh, to this subject in all of us. Um, It's called Misery of the Bottle by a pastor that all of us are very familiar with, Pastor Adrian Rogers. And uh, we're going to break that sermon down today. I think it would be a a wise thing for us to listen to it and then comment on it. And and there are some good reasons why we're going to break this sermon down, because this sermon was very influential in my early life. Um, I did not touch a drop of alcohol for 38 years because of not just this sermon, but many sermons like this that I heard over the years. And for years, the position I took was the position that had been given to me I believed what other people told me, and I never searched the Word of God for myself. And when I did begin searching God's Word, I was really surprised at what I found. And one of the reasons I wanted to go to this specific sermon is because I love Dr. Adrian Rogers. He was extremely influential in my life in my young married days when I was driving a truck down the road doing construction work, listening to his sermons on Uh, I believe it was Moody Radio, and uh, there was another radio station in town, WDYN, Tennessee Temple. Tennessee Temple. uh, Actually played him as well, even though he was Southern Baptist. And he was very influential in my life, and I was even able to go to his church uh, after his death and, and take a tour and see the influence he had had there. Brian, you actually got to meet him, didn't you? Yeah, you know, uh, Dr. Rogers, when he knew that ministry and life were drawing to a close for him, he actually uh, reached out to several young pastors that he believed held some promise for the future. And I was privileged to be one of those young pastors uh, that traveled to Memphis and had a few days to sit at his feet and hear his voice and learn from him. And he had a personal conversation with Denise and I, along with his wife, that was literally life-changing for us and for our marriage. And so for anyone who would say we're using this sermon to disrespect Dr. Adrian Rogers, you could not be more incorrect. Uh, We honor him, we appreciate him, and we understand that he is now eternally in heaven uh, forever. And so we're not going to dishonor him in any way. But this sermon is just a great example of sermons like the ones we heard. And this sermon is so famous it would be the premier sermon to point to. And so for that reason, while we all love Dr. Adrian Rogers and while we all admire him and know that he was a powerful preacher of the word of God, in this instance, I believe he approached the pulpit with an agenda. And I think yeah. that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, it's wrong to water down what scripture says. It's also wrong to add to scripture and try to take a stronger position than God takes. And uh, every one of us are pastors. All three of us are pastors. And here's one thing the three of us know. We are accountable to Scripture. 
We are accountable to God's word. And if anybody wants to take any of my sermons and do what we're doing here, go through them and measure them against God's clearly revealed word, I invite you to do that. I promise you they're not nearly as engaging as Dr. Rogers' sermons are. He has a voice (laughs) like nobody else. And uh, there was a time in my life where when I read the Bible, I heard it in my brain in Dr. Adrian Rogers' voice. Like, that's how influential he was on me. And uh, But I I think it's important for us to understand that we're all accountable to Scripture. So let's jump into this sermon and measure it against Scripture. Take your Bibles, please, and turn, if you will, to the book of Proverbs, chapter 20. Today... The title of the message is The Battle of the Bottle. The Battle of the Bottle. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And then turn over with me, please, to Proverbs chapter 23. And I begin reading in verse 29. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 29. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. The most dangerous drug in America is beverage alcohol. Let me say that again. The most dangerous drug in America is beverage alcohol, number one, because of its acceptance. Number two, because of its availability. Number three, because of the effect that it has upon our hearts and our lives and the misery that it brings. It is causing our nation to crumble at its foundations. It is causing homes to unravel and come apart at the seams. It has made veritable slaughter pens of our highways. It has ruined and blasted the hopes and hearts and homes and lives of millions. And I say the word millions and mean it. Now, I want to stop right there and say that this chapter that he quoted, Proverbs 23, it paints a beautiful picture of a drunkard, of someone who is drunken, someone who is walking around on weak knees like they're in a ship that's being tossed on the sea, someone that's being beaten and can't even feel the pain. He's painting a picture of someone who is drunken. And when he says that alcohol has ruined millions and millions of lives, you know, this this kind of crosses over into the gun argument saying that guns kill people. Well, guns can't kill anybody unless a human being picks it up and uses it. And alcohol, when it's used improperly, causes drunkenness. 
And I would say that drunkenness is clearly what is forbidden in Scripture. That is the picture that's being portrayed in Proverbs in this chapter, and drunkenness is what has destroyed millions of lives. You know, Nathan, uh, I've actually had either four or five loved ones, relatives killed in drunk driving accidents. Uh, My dad's 33-year-old sister was killed on her way home from the grocery store with cupcake mix for her five-year-old daughter's birthday party the next day. So I would take a hard stand against drunkenness or the abuse of alcohol or driving while intoxicated. But I would just say this. I believe it, it was extreme hyperbole for him to say that alcohol is solely responsible for the destruction of our nation. Sin is responsible for the destruction of our nation. Every nation that forgets God perishes. Every nation that forgets God fails. Drunkenness is a condition, no doubt, of forgetting God or living or failing to live in light of God and, and failing to live in light of the glory of God. But to call out alcohol as single-handedly destroying our nation. The other thing I would say is both of the texts he read, he used them to declare a teetotaler's position. But notice verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 20, whoever is led astray is not wise. So the person who abuses alcohol. And then the other reference that you mentioned just a moment ago, Again, it's pointing to a person who abuses alcohol, a person who in excess drinks alcohol. And so he uses a scripture to state a position that the scripture doesn't truly state. Proverbs 23 verse 30 says, those who tarry long over wine. Verse 29 says, who has redness of eyes. That's not caused by a drink of alcohol. That's caused by drunkenness that's caused, and go on down through all these other symptoms. They're all caused by drunkenness. What we just listened to really is what was driven into my brain as the litmus test for sanctification growing up. Yeah. Like, stay away from it, don't go anything near it, because it's this bad thing, and it was always taught like that to make you afraid of it, because here's the consequences of it when it's doing exactly what we have been talking about for 80-plus episodes now. It's making the Bible fit your preference. Mm. Now, we have been told from every side that we ought to drink. I mean, our friends say drink it. The advertisements say drink it. The movies say drink it. Television says to drink it. And God help us, even some religious leaders tell us that it's all right to drink it. Now, I want to speak to you today about the battle of the bottle. Now, I want to tell you what the Bible has to say because, dear friend, It really doesn't matter what the advertiser has to say nearly so much as what the Word of God has to say. You see, the advertiser, he has something to gain. He has an ulterior motive. Well, let's see what the Word of God has to say about this subject. Now, I want to remind you that when I'm talking about beverage alcohol, I am talking about that which may intoxicate. Now, if you don't understand, the Bible uh, uses the word wine in two different senses. The word wine may mean that which may intoxicate you, or it may mean that which may not intoxicate you. 
The word wine in the Bible may refer to that which is fermented or that which is not fermented. That which has alcoholic content or that which does not have alcoholic content. I intend to show you that and then make some application. But look, if you will, right away here in Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 31 and see what God's word has to say there in verse 31. God says, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. Now just underscore that phrase, when it moves itself aright. What that means is when it is fermented, when it is fermented, you're forbidden to look upon it. Now the word look means literally desire not. Don't look upon it, don't desire it. Don't lust after it, don't crave it. That's what he's saying here. That's what the word look means. It means to look with desire. He's exactly right. It means to crave it, to desire it, to think about it. That's, that's an addiction. That's exactly what he's talking about in that text. It's not taking a drink. It is an addiction, a craving, a lusting for it. And by the way, it's also believed that the red wine that he was referring to was Palestinian wine. And it was said that it would, it would glisten so much in the glass that they would actually make a reference to that wine and, and say that it had an eye that was peering back at you. So, so this is a much deeper meaning than just looking on wine that is fermented because by the way, there are other wines of other colors that are equally as fermented. Yeah. It goes back to the Greek word empathomia. If you think of that word empathomia, which is a very important word, it means a craving for something, a desire, a yearning, a demand that you have it. A lot of times you can hear that referring to gluttony, you know, yeah. I mean, I empathomia food. In this case, it's empathomia drink, you know, mm. when Lord Belly speaks, when I need that drink, that hard liquor, that thing that will keep me through, I'm empathomeing it. Really, it's when drink takes the place of God in your yeah. life, and I think that's where that's coming from. It's exactly what he means to look upon in that passage. Mm-hmm look with lust, to look with appeal, to look with approval. God says we're not to look upon it, but to the contrary, we are to shun it when it is fermented. Now, the reason that so many people have been confused in this issue, they say, well, after all, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? Uh, or after all, didn't, uh, isn't wine served at the Lord's Supper? After all, isn't this the drink of sociability and so forth? After all, why should we as Christians uh, not drink wine? Why? Nathan, just real quickly... He just said the definition means not to look on it with approval. The definition doesn't say that. Yeah. He, he had just said it's looking on it with desire. It's looking on it mm -hmm. with longing. To look on something and with lust. desire or longing or lust is not equaling to look on it with approval. As a matter of fact, I have looked on things and lusted for specific things that if you were to ask me if I approve, I would say absolutely not. Yeah. I disapprove. I'm actually angry that I have a physical desire to look at what I would disapprove of. So mm. he just added to and altered slightly the definition, which I think is critical. Yeah, it mm. is.
Christians overseas in Europe, they drink wine. Doesn't the Bible say, drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities and so forth? And doesn't the Bible say that wine makes glad the heart of man? And so after all, isn't it all right to drink? And isn't moderation really the answer? Well, I want you to pay attention now. And I want you to understand what the Bible has to say about this subject. The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, says you are not to look upon it. You are not to desire it when it is fermented. Now, let's just do a little word study right here. Before we get into the word studies, I think it's also important to talk about hermeneutics. He talks about context. The context of Proverbs is this is poetry. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's still truth, and you can still apply it to your life. It can still be used for principles, but this is poetry. He's writing poetry to his son, advising him how to live his life. This is not the same as God saying, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's, it's not the same thing. It's poetry. It's, it's used for teaching and instructing. But to twist these, in, it's like when you twist the Proverbs into promises. When you use, uh, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. You can't use that as a promise because that is not a promise that your children are never going to stray. Mm. God's children strayed away from Him, and He was the best father ever. So I think it's important to understand the context of what Proverbs is, and He uses it many times like it's a command. By the way, Nathan, He also didn't mention the same guy who wrote the passage that He just referred to, don't ever look on wine with approval, always turn away from it. He didn't mention the fact that in Ecclesiastes, that same man wrote in chapter 9, verse 7, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Yeah. Mm. He's using Solomon in one book of the Bible as his example for abstain completely and totally and fully he's using solomon to declare this is wrong it's ungodly it's a sin but he didn't read the rest of solomon's writing in the book of ecclesiastes and if our listeners will hang with us through this i know some of them are are pushing back against this and they don't like what we're doing but we want to see what the bible says there are other examples and you need to wait and and listen when we point these out other examples where he literally reads half of a verse and doesn't read the other half. Just like you said he read from Solomon in one place, didn't read from another place. There are at least two places in the sermon where he reads half of a verse, leaves the other half out because it totally changes the meaning of it, and we're going to get there. Now let's just do a little word study right here. There's a word in the Hebrew that we would, uh, uh, is, is the word shikar. Shikar, it's the word we get most likely our word sugar from. And the word shikar is translated in the Bible, strong drink. For example, in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 that I just read, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Shikar is raging. That is, shikar is a brawler, is literally what that means. Now, you're going to find, as you read in the Bible, that strong drink, which is the heaviest of of the Bible drinks, strong drink is universally condemned in the Bible. Universally condemned in the Bible. A Christian is not to have anything to do with strong drink. I have to stop right there. He clearly said, and he repeated himself, strong drink is universally 
condemned in the Bible. Let's, let's keep listening to what he says. That's the word shikar. Now, there's one exception to this, and let's look at the exception while we're in the neighborhood. Turn to Proverbs chapter 31, if you will, for just a moment. And look, if you will, in verse 6. Give strong drink, that is shikar, unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. This strong drink was used in the Bible as a narcotic. Now, just as we would a person on his deathbed give him an injection of morphine to kill the pain, shikar was used in that way. Shikar was used as a narcotic, as an act of mercy to a person in extreme anguish, then that was a legitimate use. Now, today we would not tell people that they would use morphine for recreation. They would not use morphine for relaxation and so forth. They did not have morphine, but they did have shikare, and that, is, uh, that was an allowable use of a shikare or strong drink there in the Bible. So he said that there's one exception, and I know he's using the word strong drink, but let's just read this passage in context. Verse 6 in Proverbs 31 says, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. So is that approving people who have heavy hearts, people who are sad, drinking wine to cheer them up? Verse 7 says, let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. It, it, it doesn't sound like the context that Dr. Rogers is trying to present there. I want you to notice in the same context, look right up in chapter 31 and verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, that is, she care, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Now, what does God say? If you have a responsible position, you are not to be an imbiber. You're not to be a drinker. That's just as clear as uh, black print on white paper could be. As clear as black ink on white paper. So he said that there's only one exception to strong drink being universally condemned in the Bible. What about Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22, down through verse 27? I want to read this to you guys out of the King James Version, because I know a lot of our listeners only believe what the King James Version has to say, and that's what Dr. Rogers was reading out of. So I want to read Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22 down through 27. Listen to this, talking about strong drink. Thou shalt tithe all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth year by year. And thou shalt before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose to place his name there, the tithe of thy corn, of thy wine, and of thy oil, and the firstlings of thy herds and of thy flocks, that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. Verse 24, And if the way be too long for thee, so that thou art not able to carry it, or if the place be too far from thee, which the Lord thy God shall choose to set his name there, when the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, verse 25, then shalt thou turn it into money, and bind up the money in thine hand, and shalt go unto the place which the Lord Thy God shall choose, 26, and thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen, or for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, 
or for whatever thy soul desireth, and thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice, thou and thine household, 27, and the Levite that is within thy gates, and thou shalt not forsake him, for he hath no part nor inheritance with thee. That is a clear command to enjoy strong drink, the same word that he just got through saying, shikar, shikar. It's a clear command for them to enjoy that as a gift from God. Not only that, we also see in Numbers 28, verse 7, where the Bible says, And the drink offering thereof shall be the fourth part of an hen for one lamb. In the holy place thou shalt cause the strong wine, the same word, the strong wine to be poured out unto the Lord for a drink offering. Strong drink, strong wine, shikar, was used in offerings unto the Lord in the temple. He never mentions this in the sermon. He just says it's universally condemned in the Bible. Except for one exception, which you've just proven. There are additional exceptions even in the text. That's a big deal for me, for someone to say this is universally condemned in the Bible, and then God is saying, buy it, drink it, enjoy it with your family and with the priest that, that is with the Levite that is within your gate because he has no inheritance. So he's telling them it's okay to spend their tithe money buying this alcohol to offer it to the Lord as a celebration. And then it's also used as a drink offering in the temple, in the daily offerings. Well, you know, Nathan, I'll say more about this, but, you know, what we're talking about is not, is alcohol good or bad? Should a person drink or not drink? Are we going to tell people to drink? Are we going to tell people not to drink? That's not even our subject. Our subject is, is it a sin? What does the Bible say? Right. Can yeah. we declare it to be a sin? And I just... I'll, I'll mention more about this, I think, in, in one of our other episodes. But if it were a sin, 1 Timothy 5, 23, Psalm 104, 15, Ecclesiastes 9, 7, Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, Luke 7, verse 34, Proverbs 31, verse 6, and deacons not being given to much wine, none of those verses would be, would be in the Bible. So if we're going to mm-hmm. cover things up or alter Scripture or say that scripture implies what it doesn't, we have to be really cautious with that. Put a star by it and mark it. Strong drink is forbidden, except for the use of a narcotic for those who are ready to die in extreme excruciating circumstances as an act of mercy to relieve pain. Now that's the word shikir. Now there's another word in the Bible that is translated wine in the Old Testament. It's the word tyros, T-I-R-O-S-H is the way we would transliterate it. And that word is translated in the King James Version of the Bible, new wine, or sometimes translated just simply wine. And what that means is grape juice, grape juice. It does not refer to that which can make you drunk. You see, they have many vineyards in the Middle East, and they drank grape juice very much as we would drink water or as we would drink some cola drink or whatever. And it is called new wine. It is not that which would make you drunk any more than grape juice would make you drunk. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. For example, in the book of Proverbs, the fourth chapter of the Bible says, Thy presses shall burst forth with new wine. That is, when you squeeze the grape, that which bursts forth is called new wine. 
I mean fresh pressed grape juice. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to press it out before it's called uh, wine. In uh, Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 8, it's called new wine in the cluster. <laughs> that is, when it's still in the grapes, when, it, when a bunch of grapes are hanging there on the vine, it's called wine. I mean that grape juice that hasn't even been pressed out, that's called wine. I want you to understand this because if you don't understand this, you're going to say, well, the Bible says that, you know, wine is a blessing and we're to drink wine. Jesus turned water into wine. Well, the word here, the word here that we're talking about right now, Tyrosh, can refer to even fresh grape juice that hasn't even been extracted from the grape. Now, Nathan, if I can just say this, Hosea chapter 4 verse 11 disagrees. Mm. The verse says, whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. So when was the last time you drank a glass of Welch's grape juice and lost your understanding? Mm. It, it's, it's just using a word in the narrowest sense. It's, it's using a word and the definition of the word in the narrowest sense, again, to advance a specific message which is the message he's trying to communicate. You know, guys, I've, I've heard this and pastors that I respect all my life go to great lengths to demonstrate, you know, that wine that Jesus made was basically non-alcoholic. It was grape juice. They talk about how the distilling of the alcohol didn't really happen until centuries later. But the problem is when you read scripture, you see people got drunk in the Bible. Yeah. There was such a thing as strong drink beginning in ancient times and therefore, this argument that the wine that Jesus made was not alcoholic or just grape juice, it, it seems really far-fetched to me and to most Bible scholars because I don't think Jesus would have just made wine to have a party or to even in, just enjoy it. But I do think that he did it to demonstrate his divinity. Nonetheless, I'm sure the people enjoyed it. I mean, it said he bought the... He, he he had the best wine at the mm. at the end. You know what I mean? So I'm not thinking that it was just grape juice. Nobody drank all the wine and then had grape juice. And they were like, whoa, this is the best grape juice after drinking all of the wine. But I, there's a verse in Joel 1.5 that says, Awake ye drunkards and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Yeah, it doesn't sound like new wine is not causing people to get drunk. It's interesting to me in Acts where it says that uh, the, the disciples were accused of being drunken with new wine. Now, I know that's a different word. That's actually a Greek word. But that Greek word, if you look it up, it actually means a wine that could be highly fermented. And it's used in the New Testament time, in the time of Jesus as a new wine that caused drunkenness. And, you know, if, if you look at the Bible and study these words out, you can see that it, it doesn't exactly match up to what the, uh, what the storyline is. I got a funny story about new wine. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, there was a song by Greater Vision yep. called New Wine. 
It's that new, new wine, the kind that makes you smile all the time. <laughs> I remember hearing that when I was probably 11, 12 years old, and I sang it all the time, and I was walking around the church, and I got yelled at for singing about wine in church. And I was like, I love this song, but it's, it's funny because I, I went back to it, and I was singing new wine, and I got yelled at for singing a Southern Gospel song that talked about new wine. Heard about it just a little while ago. You remember that song, Brian? I do. Did you write that in a drunken stupor? <laughs> I had nothing. My dad's the only one who ever wrote a song for Greater Vision. Oh, hey, man. man. If you did, I would love to hear that story, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me. Dr. Driver, a noted Hebrew scholar of yesterday, said that uh, uh, he identifies this uh, word tyrosh as, and I'm quoting, a light kind of wine such as we know that the ancients were in the habit of making by checking the fermentation of the grape juice before it had run its full course. That is, they knew how to check the fermentation of the grape juice. I've been told that the ancients did not know how to do this. Dr. Driver, of course, is one of the greatest scholars in, in ancient uh, history and, and word studies uh, in the known uh, linguistic world. Now, he said they, they just would check the fermentation because grape juice was a staple drink in that particular He's time. talking about Dr. Samuel Rolls Driver, and I have his lexicon, and you can actually access his lexicon on uh, the Blue Letter Bible app, and there are many other books that he has written. Dr. Samuel Rolls Driver disagrees with Adrian Rogers' position, but he just chose to quote one quote from him that agreed with him, and he totally left out Dr. Driver's position. And he just built Dr. Driver up as an authority, as one of the best authorities, but he totally disagrees with his position. And time after time after time, he states that. But here's something very interesting. Not only did they know how to check the fermentation, but had you allowed the fermentation to go on, it would not have created today what we call wine. Now, I, there was a study in Yale University. So how did people get drunk in the Bible? That's the point you just made, JC. That, that is a great point. University, a study on alcoholism uh, that was done, and I want to quote the results of that study. The normal process of fermentation of the fruit of the vine, listen to me, does not produce the drink with sufficient alcoholic content to bring on drunkenness. The Yale studies reveal that unless there is mechanical interference with the normal process, such as the addition of pure alcohol or other mechanical processes of distillation, it will not produce the kind of wine that is common today. So how did Noah get drunk? If what he's saying is true, how did Noah get drunk? How did Lot's daughters get their father drunk with wine? Noah got drunk on wine. If they didn't have this process, if their process was not leading to fermentation, how did that happen? It, it, it was readily available to them. They drank too much, got intoxicated the same way that we can. Well, they would have had access to things like sugar and yeast and different things like that. And even if you look, uh, you know, I love documentaries. I don't, I don't watch really any regular television. Almost everything I watch has something to do with nature or a documentary of some kind. 
Um, if you look, even the most remote tribes, even tribes that don't have corn crops or grain crops or any of those things, they have access to different uh, elements and goods in in their surroundings that allow them to make fermented drinks by which they get drunk. They don't have any modern means of fermentation or anything, and yet they have ways of making strong drinks. So to say that that wouldn't have been available in ancient times, I just don't think that's that's being genuine. Yeah. One, they knew how to check the fermentation. Number two, if you allowed it to go on, it would not produce the kind of wine that you would go into the grocery store or the liquor store to buy today. And the word tyrosh refers to, to grape juice even when it's in the cluster, when it's first pressed out. Now, if you don't understand that, you're going to get confused when the Bible says wine. You're going to think it's what we, they might sell over the counter somewhere. It is not the same. Then there's another word that is translated wine. It's the word yayin, Y-A-Y-I-N. That is also translated wine. And this word may mean that which intoxicates or that which does not intoxicate. For example... It's also translated wine. It's the most frequently used word for wine. In Isaiah chapter 16, verse 10, the Bible says, tread out no wine in their presses. And it uses the word yayin. That is, uh, again, the fresh pressed grape juice is called yayin. Well, of course, that wouldn't make anybody drunk. It's just grape juice. But then again, the Bible warns against yayin when it says in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, yayin is a mocker, she care is raging. So uh, there it can mean that which is intoxicating. So you're going to have to find out from the context when the Bible says wine, whether it means that which is intoxicating or whether it isn't. You say, why don't they say what they mean? Why don't we say today what we mean? Suppose I'm riding home now with, with uh, Dan over here. He and I are going home from church and it's a hot day. I say, Dan, let's stop and get a drink. Well, I hope he knows I mean lemonade or something like that, huh? And I just say drink. But suppose a couple of booze hounds are going home from work and one of them says, let's stop and get a drink. What does he mean? Well, he means something else. We just use the word drink. It's just a generic term. And, and when, when you say drink, it all depends on what you mean when you say it. Now, the same thing was true in the Bible times. You see, the word yayin is a, a generic word. Now, in the New Testament, there's another word. It is the word oinos. Jesus turned water into oinos. That word is translated wine also. It is a Greek word translated wine. Oinos. And that too may mean that which is intoxicating or that which is not intoxicating. They use uh, this word oinos, translates both the word yayin and it translates the word tyrosh. It never translates the word shiker. I don't want to get too technical, but I want to say that when you read the word wine in the New Testament, you can only know by the context whether or not it means that which will make you drunk. It does not always mean that which will make you drunk. It frequently means that which is not intoxicating. And that's the reason that uh, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 31, Look not thou upon the wine when it is fermented. When it moves itself aright, that kind of wine you are to shun, you are to leave it alone. Now, did Jesus turn water into wine? Jesus turned water into oinos. Is that the kind of drink that would, would make a person drunk? Of course not. Of course not. Capital N-O. Don't you know that Jesus knew the Old Testament in the book of Habakkuk, the second chapter? Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor to drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, that maketh him drunken. Don't you Hold know on. Jesus Hold on one second. He just quoted 
Habakkuk 2.15, but he only quoted part of the verse. He used the reason why Jesus didn't turn the water into wine because of the verse that says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor to drink that putteth the bottle to him and maketh him drunken. He stops reading there. What does the rest of the verse say? It says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor to drink that putteth thy bottle to him and makest him drunken also that thou mayest look upon their nakedness. It's getting them drunk He's for the purpose of sexual sin. Getting them drunk for the purpose yep. of sexual sin to take advantage of them. It's like a date rape drug. It's wrong yep. to get people drunk to take advantage of them sexually. He totally left that out. There's another sermon that he preaches, and he quotes half of that verse and leaves the other half out. And, and that wasn't by accident. I actually had this conversation with someone very, very, very close to me. And they said, well, there is, is that one verse in the Old Testament that says, you know, don't, don't put drink to your neighbor's mouth. And I said, do you know what the end of that verse says? And they were like, no. And I said, it, it, it clearly says, don't get them drunk so you can look upon their nakedness. Right. And Nathan, if I can mention one more thing as well. He keeps going back to that one verse, not to look on wine when it's moving, not to look on wine when it's red. I want to read from one source. This this is a good look on what that was likely referring to. The terms red and moveth itself refer to wine when it is in the process of fermentation. This is the period before the wine is fully fermented. If during this time a person looks on it so as to finally drink it, he may become sick and possibly even die. In fact, instances are recorded of winery workers becoming asphyxiated by merely leaning over the wine vats to look on the fermenting wine and being overcome by poisonous gases. So what the verse is likely referring to is someone who is so addicted to wine, they can't even wait for the fermenting process to take place. Mm. They want it mm. and they want it now. They have to have it. They're being driven toward it, even in spite of the danger. Uh, for example, when I was a kid, I grew up in Mount Airy, North Carolina. My papa was a barber. As you guys know, my papa was my hero. Well, in our town, there was the town wino. His name was Mousy Edwards, wore bib overalls every day and literally walked the streets. He was a really sweet man. He never caused anybody any harm, but he had literally drank himself to death. There came a time when my papa could no longer put... Uh, his hair tonic bottles, those big old glass bottles out in the trash can because he happened to look out the window one day and Mousy Edwards was out there leaning over into the trash can and literally drinking the remaining hair tonic out of those mm. bottles for the alcoholic content. And it was dangerous. It was, it was poison. And yet he was mm. so driven that he couldn't keep himself from it. So he keeps on going back to that verse. Don't look at the fermented wine. Don't look at the fermented wine. No, when it was moving, was when it was in the process of fermenting, and the gases and even the drink would have been dangerous. So it's likely referring to a person who was so given to alcohol that they just couldn't even wait for the process to complete. Wow. That, that makes a whole lot of sense. 
The Lord Jesus knew what uh, Solomon had said there in the Proverbs. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth forth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. Don't you think that the Lord Jesus knew that? Do you think that the Lord Jesus had anything to do with making people drunk? If you do, you don't know the Jesus that I know. You don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Of course not. So in answer to his question, do, you, do we think that Jesus had anything to do with making people drunk? No. Absolutely not. Jesus did not have anything to do with making people drunk. Just because Jesus made wine doesn't mean he made people get drunk. Just because he made alcoholic wine, he didn't make them get drunk. Remember, Jesus is the creator of the world and all the processes. Jesus created alcohol. Jesus created fermentation because it can be used for good purposes, including medicinal purposes and as a good gift to drink in moderation, as was commanded in the Old Testament. So, no, that doesn't mean that Jesus caused people to get drunk just because he turned it into wine. I mean, if you think about it, he did come eating and drinking. Look what they said in Luke 7. said, the Son of Man, on the other hand, feast and drinks, you say. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Mm. So they accused Jesus of drinking, and he never said, no, I don't. Um, how about this one? So here's my question, guys. Do we believe that Jesus is God? Yes. Do yeah, we believe absolutely. that? So then how about Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15? You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for men to cultivate, that he may bring forth good food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's hearts. So it was God who created, Jesus who created, just like you just said, Mm. everything on this earth. What about Isaiah 62, 8 and 9 that says, The Lord has sworn by his right hand, by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food to your enemy, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Wow. Hmm. That's a good one. And guys, my mind is still blown that strong drink, which is the strongest of all alcohol in Scripture, as Dr. Rogers said, was used in offerings to the Lord, in drink offerings. It, mm-hmm. it's, that's just amazing. Jesus provided refreshments for the party. Jesus provided oinos which may or may not mean that which is intoxicating. In this case, of course, it did not mean that which is intoxicating because we know the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some people say, well, didn't Jesus serve wine at the Lord's Supper? No. At the Last Supper? No. Of course not. Of course not. You see, look, how do we have the Lord's Supper? We have the Lord's Supper what? With unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Do you know what unleavened bread is? Unleavened bread is bread without fermentation in it. Unleavened bread is bread without yeast in it. Unleavened bread is bread without uh, leaven in it. It is unleavened bread. Why? Because leaven in the Bible is a type, a picture of sin. The Bible says purge out that old leaven. Uh, The Old Testament feasts were made without leaven because leaven is a symbol of sin. And so they would eat that feast with unleavened bread. Well, what is fermented uh, grape juice? It is grape juice with leaven in it. It is grape juice with yeast in it. It, it, That's what the fermentation is. Do you think that that the element of the bread would not have leaven in it and then the element of the drink would? Of course not. 
No, for the type to be consistent. Uh, our Lord is not telling us that we're to drink fermented wine at the Lord's Supper when we have communion. I, as a matter of fact, if you check the scripture, the word wine is not even used. I think history shows and culture clearly shows that they did use alcoholic wine mm -hmm. at Passover. And that's what they were doing was observing the Passover meal. It's not even used at all. The Bible uses the term the fruit of the vine or the Bible uses the term the cup. Why the fruit of the vine? Because the, the, the wine, uh, the, the fruit of the vine, that uh, grape juice is called in the Old Testament the blood of the grape, the blood of the grape. Jesus said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. You'll never tell me that fermented, rotten grape juice is a symbol of the pure saving blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, Jesus used the fruit of the vine there in that particular day, and it, it was unleavened bread. Jesus, our great high priest. If you read in the Old Testament, the, the, the priest in the Old Testament were absolutely forbidden to drink wine. Jesus is our high priest. Did you just hear what he said? Yes, they were If you read the forbidden. Old Testament... If you read the Old Testament, you will see the priest in the Old Testament were absolutely forbidden to drink wine. I want to see if I cut anything off of what he was going to say. Of course, he did not, would not. And we are priests of God. No. Jesus is our high priest. Of course, he would not and did not. We are priests. Well, the verse he's referring to is Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9. And God is telling the priests... In the King James Version, do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. It was not forbidden for priests to drink any kind of alcohol, it was forbidden for them to drink wine or strong drink, when they went in to serve in the temple. They couldn't get drunk and go into the temple and serve God, or they would have been struck dead immediately. Mm -hmm. And he, he uses that to prove that Jesus would not have used or drank alcohol because he was a priest. And the, the Old Testament clearly does not forbid priests to drink wine. And, and that's another place where he intentionally, because he's a very smart man and he's a very good preacher, but he intentionally twisted that verse to mean something it did not mean. And he knows about context. He knows about hermeneutics. He says multiple times in this sermon that you have to check the context. You have to look at the context. And he uses this, and he uses this in another sermon that I've heard as well, the second sermon, the follow-up to this, to say that that means that priests were forbidden to drink. Priests were not forbidden to drink alcohol. They were only forbidden in the temple when they were serving God. You know what I find interesting is in the Nazarite vow, why they would take a vow for a certain amount of time. If you look at Numbers chapter 6, uh, verse 2 and 3, it says, Speaking to the children of Israel, they say unto them, Whether man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, verse 3, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. Hmm. 
it's interesting that at one time they're allowed, but they're not allowed to do it for a certain amount of time. Yeah, if they weren't allowed to drink strong drink, if it's strictly forbidden in the time. Old Testament, then why would they take this vow not to drink it? It seems like right. they're giving something up for a certain exactly. amount of time. And these are people in good standing with the Lord. It's such mm. a good standing that they're taking this special vow. Dude, that's a great point. As a matter of fact, Jesus emphatically refused that kind of wine. When Jesus was on the cross, they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh. Now, what was wine mingled with myrrh? That's what we call strong drink. Wine mingled with myrrh. I I looked this up. Myrrh is used for flavoring in drinks. It has no intoxicating properties. It was used for medicine, external medicine. It's used to flavor the drinks. Isaiah 5, verse 22. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, men of strength to mingle strong drink. Wine mingle with myrrh. They gave it to him to drink. What did Jesus do? They gave to him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, and he received it not. He wouldn't drink it. They were giving it to him as a narcotic. But Jesus even refused that. Jesus would not take it. Jesus refused it. Later on, they offered him vinegar on a sponge. He took that. But Jesus would not take that wine mingled with myrrh. He refused it. No, listen. You can do all the fancy footwork you want to. You can talk about Jesus turning water into wine and all of the rest of it, but you'll never convince me that's what my Savior did on that day when he became uh, the life of the party, when he, when the refreshments ran out and Jesus provided oinos for all of those who were there and the ones who drank said, I've never tasted anything like this before. Indeed, it was wonderful. Now, having said that, I want to give you the first point. I want us to think a little bit about the misery of the bottle. Look again in Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 29. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 29. Do you have it? Now look at the question that Solomon asked. Who has woe? Now the word woe means misery. Who has misery? That's the reason I'm talking first of all about the misery of the bottle. Who has misery? On the misery index, alcohol makes a perfect 10. I want you to think of some factors that make that so. First of all, there's the sorrow factor. The word woe means misery or sorrow. Heartache, anguish, pain, pain, moan and groan, and unmitigated sorrow follow in the train of alcohol and come out of the mouth of the bottle. It is alcohol that will make a man lie to his mother. It is alcohol that causes a man to beat his wife. It is alcohol that will cause a man to neglect his children. It is alcohol that causes an otherwise virtuous woman to be loose in her morals. It is alcohol that will drive a wedge between father and son and father and daughter and mother and son and mother and daughter and turn children into rebels against parents, against society and against God himself. No, it's drunkenness that yes, does all right. of those things. That's exactly right. what I was thinking. I want to tell you, dear friend, there is what I want to call the sorrow factor. And then also there's the contention factor. Look again, if you will, in verse 29, who hath contention? Now the word contention means strife and warfare and hatred. I, I've been a counselor long enough to know the divorces that are caused 
by alcohol. I've lived long enough to have seen the fights that are caused by alcohol, the arguments that are caused by alcohol, the violence that is caused by alcohol, the murder that is caused by alcohol. Time magazine said that alcohol is involved in one half of all murders. One half of all murders. There is what I want to call the contention factor. Solomon says, who... Drunkenness causes all of those things. In case yeah. anybody missed it, not alcohol has contentions. And then also there's the foolishness factor. Look again in verse 29 of this same chapter. He goes on to say, who hath babbling? The word babbling means foolish talk. Foolish talk. Have you ever listened to a drunk talk? Have you ever listened to a tipsy? He accidentally said it there. A drunk talk. talk. They think they're the life of the party. Wouldn't it be great if they could be videotaped and the next morning be faced with what they did? Shakespeare said, oh, what fools men are to put that in their mouths that steals their brains away. The foolishness factor. It would be bad enough if that's all there is. But let me get more serious. There is the mutilation and the destruction factor. Look again in verse 29. Who hath wounds without cause? Wounds without cause. I came up on an accident right after it happened. All the blue lights were flashing. The cars were all over the highway. I did not know what happened. I parked my car and got out to see if perhaps I could be some help. I looked at a car that was hopelessly, horribly twisted and mangled. A policeman came over to me. He said, Dr. Rogers, come here. He said, you see that car? He said, we've just taken the lady out of that car to the morgue. He said, you see that car? I said, yes. He said, that car was coming down on the wrong side of the road and it ran that stoplight back there. It impacted this car, hit this car head on. I said, was the man drunk? He said he was dead drunk. I said, what was his reaction? Was he hurt? He said, no, he wasn't hurt at all. I said to him, do you know that the lady in that other car was just killed? And preacher, and I want you to understand, I'm just quoting these words. He said, preacher, he said to me, I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn. There he is, drunk. Wrong side of the road, going through a red light, just like a, a missile headed toward a woman who one moment, perhaps turning into her home to see her friends and her loved ones, the next moment her life is gone. We advertise it, we promote it, we say it's all right to drink it. How do you think all these people get home, get home at night after they go to these taverns? Do you think they walk home? They drive home. Somebody says, you know, it's, no, it's nobody's business but mine. Don't try to tell me, Mr. Rogers, what we can do. Well, listen, if one shot of alcohol makes you stop your car six feet slower than you would have stopped if you're not taking that one shot of alcohol, and my little grandbaby's in that six feet, it might make a lot of difference, dear friend, to me. And don't tell me that it's none of my business. Don't tell me when we have to live in a society that makes our roads uh, veritable slaughter pens that it doesn't make any difference to me, that we don't have any right to speak out. The Bible says, who hath wounds without cause? Also, the mental anguish factor. Look again in verse 29. Who hath redness of eyes? This speaks of the weeping, the crying, the anguish, the hangovers that come. By the way, dear friend, don't think that I'm jealous over people who can drink. Hey, Brian, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert, but who has hangovers? Drunks. JC, who has hangovers? Uh, people that are drunk. Okay. 
I'm not one little bit jealous. I just as soon eat dirt. I've got joy unspeakable and full of glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. The difference of the joy that Jesus gives and the joy that this world gives is Jesus doesn't give a hangover. The blessing of the Lord it maketh full and addeth no sorrow with it. Who hath redness of eyes? Drunkard. You look at, the, look at the man who is drinking. It affects his own entire personality. He has red eyes. He has a dark brown breath. He has a white liver. He has a yellow streak. He has a blue outlook. I mean, the, the entire life is affected by this thing. There is the, the uh, mental anguish factor. There's the health factor. Look, if you will, in verse 31 again. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth forth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright, that is, when it is fermented. At the last, now underscore this, the devil's very smart. When you begin to drink, it's always fun. The devil's too smart to go uh, fishing without any bait on his hook. At the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. At the last. Now, what's so bad about a serpent's bite? After all, he's just got little teeth. What's so bad about a serpent's bite? Well, what is in the serpent's bite? Poison. Venom. Have you ever stopped to think what the word intoxicated means? Huh? Now, now, now what does the word intoxicated mean? It, it, it means that you've got toxin put in you. It's poison. All right, now, 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 if a person is intoxicated, you know what has happened to him? He's been poisoned. When a person is snake bit, he's been poisoned. You see, it bites like a serpent. It stings like an adder. When a man is intoxicated, he has poisoned himself. Why do you think people throw up sometimes when they drink? I'll tell you why. Because they're drunk. They've got more sense in their stomach than they have in their head. Sure. I mean, it is poison. And it affects the health. It affects the liver. It affects the mind. It affects the stomach, the digestion. It affects the muscles. And it becomes a major health problem. Even if one did not become an alcoholic. But then there are those who become alcoholics. And oh, they say, well, you know, that's a sickness. Well, it is a sickness. Others say it's a disease. I beg to differ. It's a sickness, not a disease. It's not like diphtheria. It's not like polio. It's not like any other disease. It's the only disease we put in a bottle that we advertise and sell across the counter. No, not a disease. A sickness, a sickness. Oh, but they like to have us believe that we're just victims of a disease. Somehow we caught it. No, we poisoned ourselves. We poisoned ourselves. We turned up the bottle and we drank poison. It bites like a serpent. It stings like an adder. They don't want us to hear that. They don't want us to know that. There is, dear friend, the health uh, factor. There's the immorality factor. Neither one of you guys know this because I haven't talked to you about it, but this is very personal to me, this specific point. Uh, recently, I had a very young family member, a very young, very close family member of mine, die as a result of, of drunkenness. Already at an early age, alcohol had damaged his body internally. And uh, although he was rushed to the hospital and, you know, they used every medical attempt they possibly could, there was no 
saving his life. Mm. But that was the result of drunkenness. And drunkenness mm. is the result of abuse. Abuse is the result of rebellion against God and the warnings that mm. God has given us. And so for anybody who would say, well, you know, Brian Edwards or, or the guys from the RFP, they're just promoting alcohol. I'll never promote alcohol. I live to promote nope. the gospel. Amen. But to say something is a sin when it's not clearly defined by the Bible, I, I just I want everybody to understand I'm not promoting that you abuse alcohol. It, it's cost us multiple family members in our immediate family. And so I, I appreciate what he's saying about the health aspect of alcohol at the same time. He's making it sound as if it is any alcohol at all. That's his whole premise. But what he's describing is actually a person who severely abuses alcohol. And as a yeah. result of severely abusing alcohol, they ultimately abuse their body, which means they don't even see themselves as the temple or the dwelling place of God. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's just like gluttony. Like JC said, you can abuse a good thing. We all agree. Good fried chicken mashed potatoes and gravy. It's good food. We It's a gift from God. We enjoy it, but you can take it too far. I was talking to yeah. someone the other day about how you can drink too much water and die. If you drink yeah. too much water, it can poison your system. And it's a good thing, but abusing it is wrong. So a lot of what he's saying, I agree with the ethos of what he's saying. I agree with his heart. I agree with the passion behind what he's saying, I hate drunkenness. I hate abuse. I, I, it's plagued all of our families, guys. We could be yeah. honest. It's, it's plagued us, and we've watched people that we love be affected in negative ways by it, not to mention people we've counseled, people that have gone to our church, kids that we've ministered to whose parents are in prison or dead because of it, or they don't have shoes, or they don't have enough food because of drunkenness not because of alcohol it's because it's abused it's become a functional god in yeah. their life mm. i think i think if you go back to it what you find is idolatry food drink sex you name it those things are a functional god and drunkenness alcohol the liquor the wine the strong drink has become their functional god and yeah. it's idolatry that's yeah. that's what it is Alcohol is taking the place that God alone should stand. Mm. Not just the taste of it, the act of not just the act of drinking it, but the actual liquor has taken the place of God in their life. What a powerful point. Yeah. Look, if you will, in verse 33 of this same chapter. Thine eyes shall behold strange women. Now, what does that mean? A woman who's weird looking? No. Look in verse 27, for a whore is a deep ditch and a strange woman is a narrow pit. He's talking about a, a prostitute. What he's saying is here that liquor and immorality go together. That's the reason that you'll find the two together so much. That's the reason when a man wants to seduce a woman or in these days vice versa, liquor is involved. Someone has made a smarty little couplet, uh, candy is dandy but liquor is quicker. You know what they mean by that? I want to seduce somebody. 
just uh, use liquor because that, suff that softens up the inhibitions. You know what the, the, the liquor dealers tell us? They say, now you preachers, you preachers, you're always trying to say liquor causes these crimes and you're trying to say that liquor causes these deaths and liquor causes that child abuse and liquor causes that property and liquor causes uh, that uh, uh, immorality. Liquor doesn't cause that. We don't cause that. That was already in the person. I couldn't agree more. That is true. Latent down in the human heart is a thing called the sin principle. Do you know what liquor does? Liquor removes the inhibitions. Mm. That's what liquor does. Now, who hasn't had a desire when he's got a new car to see how fast it'll go? But he said, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. I might get hurt. Let him get drunk, and that inhibition is gone. Who does not have uh, a desire to do many things that he ought not to do, but down in his heart, God has also mercifully given a principle of inhibition. But liquor destroys that, and the inhibitions are gone, and therefore the immorality causes a, a, a happily married woman to forget her marriage vows. It causes a man to lust. It causes teenagers to commit fornication. It causes crime and murder and all of these things. Because immorality, there's the immorality factor. It's a part of the misery index. There's the instability factor. Look, if you will, in verse 34 of this same thing here. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea. Like a, like a drunken sailor, that's what he's talking about, or is he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Now, what he's talking about here is the tottering, staggering, drunk. He cannot walk straight. He cannot talk straight. He cannot think straight. And by the way, there's nothing funny about a drunk. Nothing funny at all. Did you notice through that section he repeatedly said, a drunk, a person yep. who's drunk, mm -hmm. He repeated yeah. that over and over again. And by the way, I just want to say, because we've been working our way through this sermon, I absolutely agree with everything he just said in that segment. That when people yeah. are drunk, their inhibitions are gone. They make horrible life decisions. They commit incredible atrocities. They're people who mm -hmm. are taking advantage of. So I even watched uh, not long ago, it was been a couple of years ago, uh, this newscast where they talked about the fact that this young lady was on spring break and she got heavily intoxicated. And while in that condition, she was gang raped, which ultimately completely changed her life and <clears throat> even her well-being, her mental health and all of that. So I appreciate that through that segment, he preached boldly. He called out drunkenness and I agree with everything he said in that segment. And I'll be straight up honest with you. I'm a college pastor in a college town. Num one of the number one party schools in the country. Everything he just said is straight up truth. Yeah. I see it happen all the time. Yeah. Out of control. A drunken driver killed a child in a Midwestern city. The editor, courageous editor, put in the newspaper these lines. Get your children off the street. The man of distinction is at the wheel. Get your children off the street. You see, they're out of control. Dear friend, there's the insensibility factor. Look, if you will, in verse 35 of this same chapter. The Bible says here, They have stricken me, thou shalt say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. He's insensible. We talk about a man who's drinking as what? Feeling no pain, right? And that's true. Because the sensibilities are deadened. I told you before, I think, of a preacher I heard say that he decided he wasn't going to drink when he was a young boy. 
not because of what the Bible said or not because of what his parents said. He said he saw a man trying to get in an automobile and drive off, but the man couldn't get going because he couldn't get the door shut, and he couldn't get the door shut because his leg was outside the car, and he kept slamming the door on his leg. And that man said, as a boy, I made up my mind I wasn't going to drink anything that make a man that stupid. I had an experience very similar when I was eight years old. Someone that I was related to was the first intoxicated person I ever saw picked me up and hugged me and jerked me around so hard that things cracked and popped in my neck. And I thought he broke my back at, at one point. And my dad explained to me that he was drunk and I could smell it on him. And that was my very first experience. Think of that. I, I lived eight years without seeing a drunk. Praise God for being raised in a Christian home where alcohol was not abused and my parents didn't even touch it. And that experience, like he said, it impacted me very strongly and I never wanted to be like that. It, it shaped me as a young boy. They have stricken me and I felt it not. Insensible to pain. No wonder the devil uses this thing as he does. And then there's the addiction factor. Look, if you will, in verse 35 again, the last part. And when shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. He wants to wake up, sober up, so he can drink up. There's something about it that gets hold of a man. The Japanese have a proverb. First the man takes a drink. Then the drink takes a drink. And then the drink takes a man. Nobody ever starts out to be an alcoholic. Not a one. You see, wine is deceiver. Wine is a deceiver. Not everybody who drinks is going to become an alcoholic, but many will. And it's not, dear friend, that this sin is any harder for God to forgive than any other sin. But oh, the grip, the grip that it has, there's the national instability factor. I wish I had time to talk about that. It's not for kings, O Lemuel, to drink strong drink. Did you know that in Washington we have twice the per capita intake of alcohol of any other place, any other city in America? Twice! Twice. It is the booze capital of the world. Washington, D.C., you wonder why we're in the problem that we're in in America. Well, our time is gone. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, oh, Father God, in the name of Jesus, open our eyes. Help us to understand, dear God, this thing that's causing so much heartache to so many precious people that you love. Lord, give us not a heart of condemnation. Give us, Lord, a heart of compassion, a heart of wisdom. I realize, Lord, that there are many who are listening to me today whose hearts and hopes and homes have been blasted and ruined by King Alcohol. Lord, help them to know that there's hope in the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, precious Savior. Amen. So many things that Dr. Rogers said were really good, and I agreed with it, but the bottom line of this is he preaches this entire sermon interchanging the words alcohol and drunkard. He switches them out, and it's, I believe, a sleight of hand. He wants to make the point for teetotaling, for not drinking at all, total abstinence, and to do that, he has to mix up the terminology, the biblical yeah. terminology. He has to quote parts of verses and leave other parts of verses out. He has to quote authors and leave other things they say out, and he paints a picture that is incomplete. Now, we said we were going to make a biblical case for alcohol, a, a biblical stance on alcohol, and in this first episode on this that we've been waiting a long time to get to, I've been taking notes and studying this issue for months, and I know you guys have too. 
But the bottom line is the Bible never condemns drinking alcohol. It condemns drunkenness. It condemns abusing alcohol. Ephesians 5.18 clearly says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. The The King James says, Wherein is excess? What does excess mean? It means too much of something. It means you've gone too far with it. It says, do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So drunkenness is absolutely condemned. And it says in that verse that drunkenness is a problem because it goes too far. You use too much of yeah. it. Galatians five nineteen through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness. That's a work of the flesh. It's a sin. The Bible clearly lays out that drunkenness is a sin. And it is a sin if a Christian does it. And Christians should absolutely avoid it. And I could go on. Romans 13, 13 talks about drunkenness. Luke 21, 34 talks about drunkenness. It is clearly condemned in Scripture. You cannot find a single place where drinking alcohol responsibly as a good gift from God, as was commanded in the Old Testament, and even the priests and God's chosen people partook you can't find one place where it is condemned as a sin. So for a preacher to stand up and clearly preach it as sin is going further than God goes and further than the Bible goes. And you know, had he begin that sermon with, I'm going to share with you why I've made a personal choice to entirely and completely abstain from alcohol. Had he presented it in that way and even said, I would encourage you in that direction. It would have been completely different, but instead he used scripture and, and pieces and fragments of verses to build a case that the Bible doesn't necessarily build. And you know, in that text that you quoted a moment ago, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Think Mm -hmm. about this. That was presented in a way. There are two controlling factors. The Holy Spirit controls us. We are controlled by the Holy Spirit. We yield to the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't desire to grieve the Holy Spirit. So it's either you will be controlled by the Holy Spirit or you will be controlled by alcohol. I think right. I think that's given in a way that it could be interchangeable. I think he could have said, do not be obsessed with money. I think he mm-hmm. could have said, do not be addicted to sexual indulgence i think he could have said virtually anything power power, virtually anything that would be controlling and so in that passage it's presented in this way don't be controlled by anything other than the holy spirit the holy spirit has absolute ultimate control and authority over your life and nothing should be competing with that so i want to be completely clear As one of the hosts of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, my name is Nathan, and I am absolutely against drunkenness. It destroys lives. It hurts people. It 
it mocks the name of God. It makes God's name look bad in front of uh, people in this world. Drunkenness is a sin. The Bible clearly lays out that drunkenness is a sin, and we need to be careful with that. And that's my position. That is the biblical position. And I don't think we would come on here and promote alcohol to the point that we say you need to go out and no. drink alcohol because the Bible doesn't say that. There's, We don't want to present an advocacy for drinking alcohol in a cavalier way. I mean, we, we live in a culture of out alcohol abuse, addiction, drunkenness. There's drunk driving. There's teenage alcoholism. Nate, we're youth pastors. We see that. Yeah. We would be stupid to think that there aren't teenagers that are part of drinking alcohol. Uh, there's child abuse that stems from drunk parents. That's a huge issue. Moderate drinking can lead to alcoholism, to drunkardness. Yeah. Uh, we know that's a fact. That's why we are extremely careful to not just say, hey, alcohol is not a sin in the Bible, go drink. A person's background, their disposition, the environment, all of those things have to be a factor into this discussion. And so we want you to hear what we have to say, but just like I tell our teenagers, just like I tell all these college students that are here that I'm their college pastor, don't just take what we say as fact. Be like, oh, JC, Nathan, and Brian said it's not a sin, so let me start doing this. You deal with your heart. Mm. You ask God, is this right? Is this wrong? Is this a sin? Am I convicted by this? Don't just say, well, they're not convicted by it, so then it must be okay. Here's what you need to hear from us. We do not like drunkenness. It is a sin. It is destroying a lot of things. And we're going to break this down next episode, the negative side of alcohol. Yeah. I think that would be a very important thing to come back and do. We probably shouldn't do it on this episode since we're well over two hours now. But I think <laughs> coming back for part two of alcohol, that would be a very wise thing for the us to do. The dangers of drunkenness. Yeah. I'll make a graphic right now. By the way, I also want to say to everybody who's listening, also don't make assumptions about us. Because yeah. I know there are going to be people right now who are going to say, okay, so they work through that sermon and and JC said this and Nathan said this and Brian said this. And I bet you Brian Edwards at home right now has beer in his refrigerator. And people are going to make assumptions like that. And I just want you to know, guys, when I was actually about 15 years old, I had a guy offer me my first beer. He said, you're going to love this. And he reached down. And he picked it up. And, you know, that's a season in my life when I was pretty rebellious and pretty willing to experiment with anything. And I cracked the top on that thing. And I took the biggest swallow you can possibly imagine. <laughs> it foamed up in my mouth. It started coming out of my nose. I was heaving and gagging. And my beer drinking career ended with one drink. <laughs> it literally did. I mean, it was the worst thing I've ever tasted in all of my life. So what I just want to say to people is this. Don't make assumptions that lead you to wrong conclusions. Because if you're not careful, you'll do that. And as a result of us trying to use this subject and deal with it in a biblical way, if you're not careful, you'll be guilty of bearing false witness. And the Bible does say that's a sin. Yeah. So to say that a stronger position is total abstinence, is to say that your position is stronger than the biblical position because the Bible never commends total abstinence. It actually encourages drinking in certain places. 
But drunkenness is clearly a sin, and we came on this episode to clearly lay out a biblical case on alcohol. And I think we can clearly say the biblical position on alcohol is that alcohol is not a sin. Drinking alcohol is not a sin. Abusing alcohol, being drunken, is absolutely a sin, and it's forbidden. So let's just say that this two hours has been a helicopter ride over this subject, if you will. And we know there's the possibility of fallout. That's okay with us because we really believe as pastors we've got to dive into these complex issues of our time with honest questions, thoughtful answers. And so that's what we're going to continue to give you here on the RFP. And I'm excited to continue to unpack this topic of alcohol and drunkenness, negatives, positives, whatever, all of it. And if you disagree with us, we still love you like crazy. Yep. Nathan will take you out for a beer. So (laughs) that'll be good. (laughs) Oh, goodness. All right, we need to wrap this up. And guys, I also want to reiterate that I love the legacy of Dr. Adrian Rogers, and I love uh, the many, many, many sermons I've listened to him that have taught me so many positive things where he honored Scripture, and I love his heart, even in these uh, sermons about alcohol that I disagree with how he handled Scripture. I love and appreciate his heart behind why he did it. He's, he's trying to protect people, and he probably did protect people by scaring them and convincing them that the Bible just said not to touch it at all, and I appreciate his heart behind that, but uh, ultimately every pastor is held accountable by scripture. So um, I stand behind what we did today. And at the same time, I love Dr. Adrian Rogers and his legacy. So guys, we are sitting at two hours and 28 minutes. I think we need to wrap this first episode of alcohol and uh, go have a beer. Uh, So we want to thank our sponsors. I'm just kidding. You two calm down. We need to thank our sponsors, Free Life Soap. Check them out today. Go to recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the Free Life Soap tab. Use your promo code RFP and get 20% off of your order. We also want to thank Loot Box Creative for being a sponsor of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. They got some incredible stuff you need to check out, lootboxcreative.org. Go check them out today. Guys, this has been a great episode. It's good to be back in the studio with you. Can't wait for part two. I love it, man. Can't wait to see you guys next week. Oh, yeah. Hopefully people will uh, forgive us and love us by next week. Twitter's about to be on fire. Y'all have a great week. (laughs) Be sweet. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.